I was questioned repeatedly about my tie, so I should probably explain. No funerals today or weddings. Um, what happened was I got up and Lois got up and dressed. And I looked over and she was so beautiful and pretty and she had such beautiful hair and such a beautiful dress. I thought, I think I'll put on a tie so everyone knows we go together. So that was why I did that. No, it's Thanksgiving Sunday. And you have something to be thankful for. We're celebrating in America Thanksgiving week. It's a wonderful thing. I suppose one of the things I like the most about it is just like you. I like to pull up to the table to a feast for Thanksgiving. And uh, it's just how I feel about that. It's how I feel about approaching the Gospel of Luke today. It's like there's a great feast of delightful feast of truth before us. And I like to imagine what it's like to be, maybe do the women do most of the prep, right? Almost all the prep for for that Thanksgiving meal. They think about it a long time ahead of time and they get their recipes together and they imagine what will bring the light to the people who are coming for Thanksgiving. And then they shop for all the specific things that they need. And then they go through hours and hours of preparation Uh, They put on the apron and they stay in the kitchen for hours. And then in a moment, everyone gathers. And then I like to imagine that they watch people's faces. And they watch people as they delight in those foods that they made. And that they listen to the joyful conversation. And they know down deep in their heart that they've been a part of something that's very, very special. I imagine that's what it's like. And I feel that way just a little bit as I have been thinking about preparing messages and I'll have Pastor Jordan and I will work together on this and, and, and messages from the Gospel of Luke. It is a rich and beautiful feast of truth. But first, before we get to the Gospel, the good news of Luke, we must talk briefly about the bad news because it's the way of things in our town maybe in your shop or in your school or among your neighbors or in your house maybe or maybe even in your own heart that we are tempted to doubt. We are tempted to doubt. Everybody probably has at least a little doubt that they're tempted with. And sometimes those temptations can plague people that we love a lot, the temptation to doubt that Somebody that you love may flounder with doubt about the things of the Lord, about the truths that are presented in the gospel, about who Jesus is and about what he did and can I trust the Bible and is there a God and did God really create everything and did he send his son into the world as a savior and how can I know that for sure? Maybe you have someone that you love a lot who is a doubter. It's important that we acknowledge that. Maybe you have a little doubter in you. We all have a little, at least a little. Sometimes we have a temptation to doubt because we have a strong inner struggle with a temptation. Something that we want to do or we have done that isn't right. And we kind of want to rewrite the rules. And so it kind of feeds our doubt. I heard a guy say this week, if your child who is a professing Christian, goes away to college, and then they call home and they say, 
they're, they're doubting the truth of the Bible. Ask them if they're sleeping with their girlfriend. That's what the guy said. And the reason he said that is because sometimes when we want to do what we want to do, then that feeds our doubts, our temptations. Sometimes they feed our doubts. Maybe we've all had experience with that. Or maybe we have indulged in sin. And we have guilt and shame, and all of us have that. And so then we think, well, that, that feeds our doubt. Sometimes doubts come, and I talk to people a lot this way. And I wonder what it is like with you. Some people doubt the truth of the Bible, or they doubt the claims of the Bible because of hurts that they have. And that's really common. As a matter of fact, what's really common, and you hear this a lot, is people that doubt the truth of the Bible because of the people that claim to believe the Bible and how they have been treated by people who claim to believe the Bible. And that's especially difficult. When you have hurt, and when your hurt comes from someone who's a professing believer in Jesus Christ, that's an especially difficult thing. Sometimes doubts grow in the soil of disappointment. I just had this desire And I wanted this to happen so badly, but it didn't happen. That child didn't come. That marriage didn't work. And so because of the pain of painful disappointment, the seeds of doubt are planted in my soul. What do you do for a person who really wants to believe, but they have very real doubts? It's a good question. Sometimes I think people have doubts because they prayed sincerely and they feel like their prayers were not answered. And this is common because we don't know the mind of God. Sometimes we're like little children who desire something that really wouldn't be good for us, and God, who is infinitely wise, will not give it to us because it really wouldn't be good, but then the seeds of doubt are sown because of that. But I do have good news for you, and the good news, the gospel, that's what the word means. This one is penned. Through a cooperation of Luke and the Holy Spirit of God. There's a beautiful major book of the New Testament that's written to express the purpose of building confidence in faith. How wonderful is that? We have a book of the Bible that is specifically given to us to strengthen our faith. How exciting is that? And that's the book that we're going to be looking at. Today, and for a while, it's the, book of, it's the Gospel of Luke. Philip Ryken has written beautifully about Luke in a commentary that I cherish. He said, Luke is the gospel of knowing for sure. Luke is the gospel of knowing for sure. Okay, so sit back and look at this table now for just a minute. And think about the loved ones that we could gather around this table of certainty. And imagine, watch their eyes now, and imagine this is a feast of truth that we can build our lives upon. It's a gospel of certainty for those of us who have loved ones who struggle with doubt or who themselves struggle with doubt. Riken wrote, Luke is a historically accurate, carefully researched, well-organized gospel. It's a short text, so... Rosemary, if you allow me to read it again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us, 
Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all the things closely for some time past, and this is the heart of what he's saying, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, this fellow with a Gentile Greek name, this fellow with an official title, this book is written to him, and Acts and Luke are written together, and both of them are addressed to Theophilus. That you may have, there it is, that you, verse 4, you see it? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So pastorally, this is my great desire for, for me and for everyone that I love and, and, and all of our we're, we're leaving Tuesday to go to Oregon for the birth, Lord willing, of our 20th grandchild. What we want for them the most is that they would have certainty concerning these things. God, give us confidence that this wonderful good news really is true. And, the, and the, what, the, what the Bible says is if you would like to strengthen your faith and build your confidence, then attend to these words. Pull up to this table. Warm your hands by this fire. Pay attention to what he said. Know these wonderful stories. Study them. Fall in love with these stories. That's the desire that, that I have for you. There, and I want to give you today three reasons to study Luke. And I'll tell you my aim at the very beginning so that there's no confusion. And if any of you go to sleep, you'll have this truth in your mind before you drift off and, and take your nap. And that is this. My, my desire is real simple. And I think it's what, what Luke is driving at and would please the Lord for us. And that is that you would in an unusual way pull up to the table of Luke, that you would engage in the study of Luke, that you wouldn't just come and hear an occasional, you know, talk or an occasional enthusiastic preachment about Luke, but that you would in, engage. That's why Pastor Jordan went out of his way to order these books for you, um, that you could purchase one of those books and, and you could journal, if that works for you, that you could journal. Um, uh, how many of you brought a Bible today? Raise your hand and leave it up for a minute. If you have a Bible, raise your hand. Leave it up if you have a Bible. Okay, thank you. Put them down. I'm going to vote again. How many of you have a hard copy of the Bible? It's like, you know, pages that you turn and a cover. Raise your hand if you, these are people who, they feel a little superior. There we go. Okay, thank you. And how many of you, just teasing with you. How many of you brought an electronic Bible? You got a, you got a Bible on a screen. All right. So it might be, oh, did you, Neil, you put your hand up both times, didn't you? You're serious. See, that's what we want. We want people that are really, that are really I noticed that, that are really serious about the Bible. So if you're serious, you'll do like Neil, carry both. No, I'm kidding. Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's what works for you. I was, I was watching a lecture on Luke by a guy who wrote a commentary on Luke who is considered the most brilliant Luke scholar alive today. And I noticed he was reading his Bible off of his phone. So I, 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 I want to I give you a get out of jail free pass if you have an electronic Bible. But here's the thing I, I want to say, and I think it's where our text is taking us. If the claim that is being made about Luke is true, God's people shouldn't just give it a passing perusal. They should they should study to understand it. 
They should deeply pay attention to it. They should talk about it through the week. They should be, you should have a partner that you talk about it with. There, you should be perhaps a small group that you discuss these things with. It shouldn't be something that just, you know, quickly goes away like the man who eats his Thanksgiving meal. I'm sorry, but he eats his Thanksgiving meal and then he belches loudly and then he goes off and he sits in a recliner and he falls asleep in front of the football game. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy, okay? That's what I'm saying. You, you, you're the guy who says, sweetie, like, I've never done this, hon, but I, I want to publicly acknowledge, but never done this. But I imagine, you know, after I reinvent myself, he's the guy who helps with the dishes. And he's the guy who says, oh, no, honey, let me get that. Okay, I'm just acknowledging publicly that that's another guy than me. But I'm just saying, um, but, but I don't belch. That's one thing right there. Okay, sometimes I do. Okay, but anyway, anyway. Um, don't be that guy. Don't, don't be the person who just, you hear the truth and then you just try, it's seed that falls by the wayside and the birds take it away and then it's gone. But be that person who says, no, I will deeply engage. And I want to give you three reasons why. One, because Luke's gospel is truth with a capital T. It's reliable history. That's point number one if you're looking for points. Why should, why should you join me on this journey to really deeply engage with the truth that Luke has given us because it is capital D truth. It is historically reliable. And it's not only is it historically reliable, but the things that it claims are just shockingly important. But we'll get to that later. Not a philosophy. It has philosophical stuff in it. But it is not written as philosophy. It's not and written as an ethical code. Yes, yes, Christianity has embedded in it an ethic that's things you should do and not do, but, but Christianity is not in its essence a, philosoph- a philosophy of life, even though it has a philosophy of life in it. And it's, Christianity is not at its essence. It's not a religious system of things you must do. It's not. Christianity is at the heart a set of truths of things that miraculously happen. So that makes history very important because history is the, is the accurate stating of facts. And that's what Luke is claiming to do. And that's what Luke has done. Facts. So when I say story, you'll hear me say story because it's one of my favorite words in the world. And it will always be. And, but when you hear me say story... You understand words have a range of meaning. If somebody, if somebody says, if your grandma says, are you storying me? What she means is, don't lie to me. You know, if grandma says, are you storying me? It means, don't lie to me. If she's from the South, that's what they mean. But when I say story, when I'm talking about the stories that Luke gave, oh, I'm not talking about myths. I'm not talking about lies. I'm not talking about fanciful fiction that was made up. This isn't historic fiction. You ever read a book that's like, could have happened, set in history, but it's not true? That's historic fiction. Luke is not writing historic fiction. He is writing narrative nonfiction. He's carefully arranged in a powerfully interesting way things that really did happen. With, and he, and in order to prove that he did, 
he added a lot of specific detail. Lois and I sometimes will have a conversation after I tell a story. And she will say to me, I'm not sure you should use people's names in the story. And then I always say to her, you're probably right because she usually is. But here's why I tell this name or, and, and, uh, or, or why I will tell a place or a date or a time. Because I'm trying to say, I'm not making this up. This story happened. You go talk to them. They'll tell you it did. You see, it, it strengthens the credibility of it. That's what Luke is saying he's doing at the very beginning here. And we don't want to miss that. C.S. Lewis, before he was a Christian, he was an agnostic, he was an atheist. And he, but he was a master at literature. And he studied all kinds of literature very carefully. He knew his stuff about literature. And here's what C.S. Lewis said about the, the, the historic records of the gospel. Listen now. He said this, quote, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature and legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Talking about the gospels. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known uh, precedent or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. You see what he said? What he's saying is this. I know my literature and the gospel accounts are history. I know myths when I see them. And if, he, and if Luke wrote down a myth, if he's writing historic fiction here, he was centuries ahead of his time. Nobody in ancient literature ever did that. So Luke is not a legend. It's not historical fiction. It's narrative nonfiction, and it's supernaturally inspired. It's breathed by God. Luke was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote. It still reflected his personality, his research skills, and the, and, and the way that God made him, but it's superintended by God. And he had access to first-hand witnesses. That's why he says in verse 2, he had original sources. In verse 2, he said, eyewitnesses and ministers of the world have delivered them to us. And the Greek word there, paradosin, is a Greek word translated delivered as in passed down with scrupulous exactness. So around the water cooler among guys and gals who don't believe in God, often it's really common for people that aren't well taught to kind of say, well, I don't believe the Bible because, you know, it's verbal, it's, it's oral legends that have just been passed down and they've been changed. But, but what you need to understand, and scholars of ancient literature in the ancient world know this to be true, is that people in those cultures didn't do it that way. They passed down things with scrupulous exactness, and they had a word for that, and that's the word that Luke was using. Luke was saying, I talk to eyewitnesses who are very careful about how they're delivering these facts because they're so important. They've been passed down with scrupulous exactness, if you will. And so this is important for us. It's faith building. It's certainty building. And Luke was in a unique place to gather and to organize these accounts. And Luke will add all these eyewitness accounts in his own carefully crafted, organized interviews. And then in a literary way, he'll present them to us. That's why it says in verse 3, having followed all things closely for some time past, I, it seemed good to me to write down an orderly account. 
Now, I'm a bit subjective, mystical. If you know me well, you know this is true. And I love the pieces in the Bible. And they're often written by Luke, who is a scientist doctor guy and a careful historian guy. Luke is often the one who, like in the book of Acts, says, and then they think it seemed good to the Holy Spirit for us to do this. Or it seemed good to not go there. Matter of fact, that's how Paul met Luke, because it seemed good to go here, but the Holy Spirit said no. And, it, and he wanted to go here, but the Holy Spirit said no. And so he followed, he, he followed a different way, and he met, he met a narrator there, who was Luke, narrating the book of Acts at the time, who starts speaking in the first person plural there. In other words, in Luke, it says, it's, it's saying they, 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 or I'm sorry, in Acts, it's saying they, 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 and that point up to Acts 16, and then it starts saying we, because scholars believe that's where Luke joined Paul, perhaps as his personal physician, perhaps to aid him in this thorn in the flesh, perhaps bad eyesight, no one really knows. Luke joined Paul there, and the narrative starts saying we. That makes sense? And so in other words, what I'm getting at is Luke was present to interview eyewitnesses. He was in a good place, so he said, it seemed good to me. That's what he says in the heart of the text today. It seemed good to me to write down an orderly account so that Theophilus will have certainty. And then God goes, word of God. It becomes the word of God. It is the word of God. I interviewed Ken Wyatt. See what I did there? I interviewed Ken Wyatt. I thought that was pretty tricky to say. It was like Ken Wyatt is the interview guy. I had a very brief interview with Ken Wyatt. I wanted to say that really bad this week. Yeah. And, and he gave me advice, and it was very cryptic, very brief. He didn't say much. You know him, you know he can, he can do that to you. Uh, he just said, here's what a reporter does. He said like this, he says, the, the, the five questions. And there are these historic questions that reporters ask. Am I right about this? Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Everybody knows that. You can see that in Luke. Luke is reporting facts. This is so important. By the way, I'm camping on point number one. Don't freak. Point number two and three are short. We're going to be fine here. But because this is important, and it's important to Luke. And, and, and so then what happens a good reporter which this is, when I read Ken's thing, I enjoy this, sorry to embarrass you publicly, but you, you get right away in that first paragraph almost, you get the who, what, when, where, why, how, and it's right branching, isn't it? It's, it's, the way he writes that would be a good writer, is gonna, a good reporter then, is going to construct simple right branching sentences starting with subject, moving to verb and object. So it's going to say, who are we talking about? What are they doing? And what, and what are they saying about who's doing whatever? And this is what you get with Luke. You, you know, Luke, when he writes in the first part, verses one through four, he, he pulls out his academic language and uses it. It looks like all the great literature of, Christian, of, of, of human history. He proves that he can write that way, but then he mercifully moves away from that academic tone and he uses folk language for the rest of the book. It's very clear, it's very precise, it's very warm, it's very emotional, it's very evocative, but it's folk language that he begins to use. But he can talk like a scholar, like an academic, because he is. And this is what Luke will do for us over and over again with the accounts of Jesus. It is really exciting. It will strengthen our confidence. It will help us to have useful gospel conversation with other people who need their faith strengthened. Luke was accurate. So we pull up to the table of Luke because he was accurate. If it could be shown that Luke's work 
contained basic errors in fact, then his whole gospel would be discredited. But it doesn't contain errors in fact in place and time and events. They can all be checked out by people who are skeptics and it can be verified that what he said was true. A historian concludes this. Wherever modern scholarship has been able to check on the accuracy of Luke's work, the judgment has been unanimous. He is one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. And I've told the story before of Sir William Ramsey, who's trained to be a, a doubter, an agnostic, and he went about, he thought there are so many details in the writings of Luke, all he would have to do to debunk the writing of Luke is to travel to the places and expose the fact that he was wrong in his geography of the ancient world. And you're, you know that we're, you know where the story's going, right? Sir William Ramsey ended up writing a book about the experience, St. Paul the Traveler and Roman Citizen, where he declared his faith in Jesus Christ because of the accuracy of the book. And this is what he said. Luke is a historian of first rank. And not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he's possessed of the true historic sense. He seizes the important and critical events, shows their true nature at greater length, while he touches lightly or omits entirely much that is valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed among, along with the very greatest of historians. And thank you, that's what we want. If we want to be certain, we want the facts, ma'am. We want the facts, sir. Who was Luke? He was a companion of Paul. He's mentioned three times, maybe a fourth time, but three times by name. In Acts 16, the Spirit guides Paul. The narrative turns to we because the writer joins in the journey. He's called early on in Philippians a fellow worker, but then later he's called a dear friend and beloved physician. And in Colossians, you know, he... He gets to the end of his life, Paul, that is. And you remember, Paul is a converted terrorist. <laughs> Interesting. Paul, all of his life, regretted what he did to Christian people, including taking their lives. You know, I regretted that, what he did to Jesus' followers. But he was a converted terrorist. So when you're looking at Hamas on TV, I will tell you the gospel is the answer for such dark and demonic souls. God's converted people before like that. At the end of his life, Paul says, just before he's beheaded in extra biblical literature, we know that Paul lost his head. But at the end, he writes, everyone else is gone. And what does he say? Do you remember? Only Luke is with me. This is Luke. This is the guy who joins Paul and he never goes away. He stays to the very end. This would make me want to read his book. Luke was there, probably, to care for Paul's decapitated body. Can you imagine? Luke was sensitive in his writing to women. He was sensitive to Gentiles. He's the only Gentile New Testament author, which may explain that. He, he was sensitive to the marginalized. If you read carefully, you will notice that of all the gospel writers, Luke was the most sympathetic even toward the Pharisees. But of course, he traveled with a converted Pharisee, so maybe that's why. It's only Luke who tells about the lowest rung of the social ladder, and he tells about them in the sweetest way. In the birth narrative, Luke is the one who tells us about shepherds. 
the poorest and the most marginalized of humans in the ancient story. The stories of reversal from poverty to blessing. And I think Pastor Jordan is going to touch on that in the next couple of weeks. Luke's not an eyewitness, but he's a faithful reporter who interviewed eyewitnesses. And he ordered the accounts. And Luke was a traveler. I like this. I like story. But I especially gravitate toward travel narrative. I love to read about people who are traveling. And what was interesting in my own life is when, in my darkest hour, God sent me on a journey. And it was a journey that I love to think about. This week, my daughter told me that my grandson, this little boy, was reading about my journey with the Lord when things were hard. I love to read about God going with people places. God wants to go with you places. And Luke is a journeyer, he's a traveler, and he's a journaler, so he writes down the details of these travels with Paul. Can you imagine? Thank God for that. Luke is the story of a journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And Acts is a story that starts in Jerusalem and it ends in Rome. He's about out among the people. And he, so he's not the guy who stays behind his desk and makes up things. He's the guy that goes out in the field and talks to people. And he gets the details. And he accurately reports them. And he's given to that. So Luke's that, that guy. And when you compare Mark 5 and Mark 8, you notice something humorous. I noticed this when I was reading a book by Michael Card on Luke. He said... Luke leaves a piece out in the story of the woman. Remember there was a story of the woman who had the hemorrhaging problem. And it, and it says about her in Mark, it says that she'd spent all of her money on what? Doctors. Luke left that part out. So it's kind of interesting. You know, and, and somebody, yes, just conjecture, but it is interesting. There you are. Michael Card said this about Luke. And of course, Michael Card, you know, is a Bible student, and he's a singer and a songwriter. And, Luke, and Michael Carden noticed this, and I want to pass this on to you. Luke loved songs. In the opening chapters, everyone seems to be singing. Mary sings her Magnificat. The angels pronounce their Gloria in excelsis. The father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, sings his Benedictus as he holds the infant prophet in his arms. And as Simeon embraces the infant Jesus, he sings his swan song, his Nucumitus. All I can conclude, Michael Card said, is that Luke, in his own right, was a lover of songs. Perhaps in his experience as a slave, he found that singing was an effective way to cope with his suffering. Whenever one of his eyewitnesses spoke, or perhaps even sang a song to him, Luke was very careful, I think, Michael Card said, delighted to record that it was a song. In Luke's accounts, we look forward to learning much about prayer. This also Michael Card noticed. He said, Luke believed in prayer. More than any other gospel writer, Luke shows us the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus went into the wilderness and he prayed all night, Luke 5. He prayed before the 12 were chosen, Luke 6. Only Luke tells us that as he was praying, he was transfigured. Luke 9, Jesus pronounces two parables on the subject of prayer in Luke 11 and Luke 18, as you know. And finally, the reason for the second temple expulsion in Luke was because, and Luke said it this way, Jesus said, this place is supposed to be a place of prayer for the Gentiles. Luke the Gentile is emphasizing prayer. So we get to learn about prayer. 
when we study Luke, and it's a shortened Lord's Prayer, sometimes called the Lucan Lord's Prayer, which can be spoken in a single breath recorded in Luke 11. This is going to be an exciting journey. Perhaps in another message, I'll include the theme of unlikely people. I think, Pastor Jordan, you'll probably touch on that next week, too. Luke makes much of the parables of Jesus, so now you know one of the reasons I chose Luke. And Luke leaves out any moralisms in those parables. You know how storytellers often, good storytellers don't do this, but novice storytellers go, and the point of it is this. But a good storyteller never has to say, the point of it is this, because if it's a good story, you get the point. And Jesus was a master storyteller. And Luke recorded those stories. Luke includes a wealth of fascinating details that underscore the reality of history, names, dates, places, historical details. It was when Tiberius was governor, when Cyrene was governor of Syria, he gives those details so you can pin him down on time and on place. So those are the facts of history. But much more, they're matters of profound and eternal and universal significance. Can I repeat that? These are facts of history. But they're more than that. And that's why we're gathered here today. That's why we sang like we sang today. That's why we do what we do. That's why we're so desperate for people to believe and not to doubt. Because number two, truth matters universally. Truth in Luke matters universally. We pull up to the table of Luke because he's telling the truth. And we pull up to the table of truth because that truth matters universally. It matters deeply. Our salvation depends on it. That's why he uses the term, not translated this way in the ESV, fulfilled. These things that happened, they were fulfilled. They were fulfillment of promises because Luke is not just recording things that happened. Luke is recording things that God ordained to happen for our salvation, for our redemption, for our deliverance, for our belief, for our trust, for our eternity. And that's why it matters. That's why we pull up to the table. This is a key word that Luke uses repeatedly in his book of Sozo. It's deliverance, salvation, sometimes rendered healing. Here's a guy, Luke, who's devoted to physical healing as a doctor. And now he's set on the, he, he has a new vision of not just healing people's souls, but or their bodies, but healing their souls. And so he uses the word over and over again. This is a message of good news, of deliverance, of salvation, of healing. Anybody here needs some healing today? Then pull up to the table of Luke and allow God to heal what no one else can heal. We got a hurting world. We got a victimized world. We got people who have legitimate reasons to hate men or hate white people or hate the powerful or hate other, hate Michigan fans or hate Buckeyes or whatever. You know, we got reason to hate all those people. And we have healing. We have a book devoted to healing. One commentator said this word, this sozo word with layers of meaning fascinated Dr. Luke. He's telling of a man who has the power and the authority to do the kind of work that he himself has been trained to do, healing bodies, but at depths undreamed of and in regions unexplored with effects far-reaching as to confound his own elementary ideas of healing and salvation. In other words, you think you're healing people now, wait until you give them salvation, healing from God. So this is the thing. In a religion, you're given things that you have to do. But in the gospel, 
you're told what Jesus already did. Somebody say amen right there. Somebody say amen. Aren't you glad you don't come every week so the pastor can tell you more stuff you got to do? This is not what we're singing about. We're singing about the one who did what needed to be done. That's good news. That's salvation. That's healing for the soul. That's the message that we have. Pull up to the table. Let me tell you a third reason that we want to pull up to the table and take Luke real seriously. Number one, because it's true. Historic truth. Number two, because that truth is going to impact our soul forever. But number three, and you see this real clearly in the text right at the end, because it's for you personally. And I think that God intended for us to see this because weren't you just shocked when you were a kid and you read for the first time, you got this big book of the Bible and it's written to one guy. Oh, Theophilus, I wrote you 24 chapters. Oh, oh, and a sequel. How many chapters? Is 28 in Acts? Help me out. Yeah, thank you. That's why we keep smart young men around us right there. You just saw that. Yeah. It's like we have, there you have all that material written for one guy, Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? Oh, excellent Theophilus. Some, some conjecture, I don't know if this is true, they conjecture that maybe these are court documents presented that, that Theophilus was a part of his trial. But, but I, I think not because it says these are things that were presented to you as true. I think that Theophilus was definitely a, a Gentile, a Greek, with a, with a, with a role in the, in the government that Paul had, or somebody had had gospel conversations with him, and he was still laboring to believe, and he needed certainty. And so Luke says, let me just lay it out for you, the whole story, Theophilus. Oh, excellent Theophilus. God cared about this guy, this not Jewish guy, this Greek guy, Theophilus, who could be seen as a part of the oppressive ruling class. But Luke didn't see it that way. He loved him. His name means one who loves God. And I think I like it when people say, if you want to love God and you want to be included in the love of God, just consider Luke written to you personally. Personal. Faith, salvation, and assurance of salvation are two related but different things. And I want you to have assurance of salvation. So let's spend some time up at the table paying attention to what Luke said and let's take it seriously. Salvation and assurance. This is uh, the Westminster Confession says that we should, it calls for the attainment of a full assurance through Christ. Luke's gospel will help us do that. You want to make your calling and election sure, like Peter said to do, study Luke's gospel. If you find yourself often saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief study Luke's gospel. If you, like the disciples, sometimes have to say, okay, Lord, you're going to have to increase my faith. Luke 17, 5. Then Luke is for you. Study Luke's gospel. In a dark time, in a troubling time, a time of hurt, and a time of guilt, and a time of shame, this book is punctuated from beginning to end with beautiful examples of faith and devotion to God and confidence in God and yes, even songs. So let's read and savor it together. Let's engage with the truth of it on a deep level. Let's prepare and pray and form groups to discuss it and apply it. Please let's invite others to join us. Let's gather around this table, this table of truth. 
And let's taste of its delights, everyone. And let's give thanks to God. And let's dig in. David.